I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter. This is Gardening with the RHS. And today is a very, very exciting day for all of us here at Wisley. At the RHS, we pride ourselves on helping to understand the world of gardening better, offering expert advice to the country backed up through world-class research. So that's why I'm so excited to be presenting this week's show celebrating the opening of RHS Hilltop, the home of gardening science a new state-of-the-art research facility in the heart of the garden. It's such a big advancement for us all. Being a scientist myself, I'm so excited by the fantastic new facilities here that offer scope for a broader range of science to be carried out by our scientists. It's all set to hold all of our researchers, advisors and our collection of more than 86,000 dried plant specimens. For visitors, we'll have expert talks, and people will be able to see the really important research we do close up. There really is lots to celebrate in this week's show. I'm currently standing outside the hilltop building at Wisley, the home of gardening science. On a wonderful sunny day with a blue sky, fluffy clouds, it's idyllic. I'm joined now by Jassy Draculich, one of the members of the plant health team. Hi Jassy, tell us a bit about the work that you do. Hi Guy, lovely to speak to you. So I'm a plant pathologist in the plant health team and I work mostly on honey fungus and also a little bit on citizen science. So Jassy, honey fungus, you've been working on it for a while. What exactly is it for people who have had a good luck never to encounter it? Honey fungus rots the roots of plants. It's a fungus that lives in the soil and once the roots are degraded, the whole plant dies back so it can attack mature trees and hedges and really valuable plants that people don't want to suddenly lose right in the peak of their maturity. I always felt rather sorry for you scientists down in the old lab that was started off in 1915. I thought you had quite a lot to bear. How is the new building going to help? Well, the old lab was very charming. I mean, it was very beautiful and it had that great smell when you walk in and everything is covered in wood panels. But yeah, it wasn't really fit for purpose for doing state-of-the-art sciences. It certainly wasn't able to contain anything if you wanted to work on anything that we needed to be careful about allowing that to escape into the environment. And in terms of keeping general contamination from your work clear was also a challenge in those conditions whereas in the new building we've got these uh, very large labs so we can have all of our equipment that we want to have um, with plenty of space to work on that and we can keep everything really clean as well as being able to just keep the climate 
controlled. So we won't have disasters of incubators breaking down and losing whole year's worth of work. We can keep things under much more reliable conditions. All the visitors are really interested in the kind of things that you're doing to help them. As well as the honey fungus, which of course we know is an um, extremely serious and common disease in gardens, are there any other diseases that you and your colleagues are working on at the moment? Yes, so we've got a summer student that's coming in to work with us in a few weeks' time, and she's focusing on powdery mildew, which obviously people really struggle to get under control. And a lot of the advice we give is sort of based on old wives' tales or myths. So yeah, she's doing some myth-busting work to get some empirical data to actually look at conditions such as light and shade and drought and overwatering and things like airflow, so being close to walls, as well as having a look at certain different applications, so comparing proper fungicides to more sustainable, less potentially um, harmful chemicals. And gardeners sometimes help with RHS research. Do you put them in white coats and get them with pipettes and measuring things out, or do they help in other ways? Well, just doing your regular gardening activities helps our research enormously because having people that are looking at all their plants closely all the time, if something new comes around, they're the people that are likely to spot it. And then if they send it in and ask for advice on that, that brings these issues to our attention. And through the advice service, our plant health team, on average, finds about two new pestle diseases on new hosts each year. And that's really important for science and really important to help other gardeners when they come to them spotting that problem for themselves. But then they can go further than that and they can be called upon to search for things. So I did a citizen science project not long after I started at the RHS, asking people to send in photographs of their honey fungus mushrooms. And from that, I wanted to see if the mushrooms were coming up, but not really causing a disease problem, because we only see it at the moment in the advice service when something's already died. Turns out, actually, most of the time it is associated with death, and we don't think we have the less serious species hanging around anyway. We don't know what problems are out there in the UK, so using all of those boots on the ground and eyes, feeding us back that information is really, really valuable. And exotic diseases that come in from abroad. Are there any we should be particularly worried about at the moment? Well, at the moment, we don't have xylella in the country, but this is something we want people to be really vigilant about. And it's something that you can take action to reduce the risk that we will end up with it in the country. This is a bacterial disease that causes scorching of the leaves, and it can look very similar to just drought or chemical damage. So if you see scorch, don't immediately panic. But if you are buying things irresponsibly, think about what you're doing. Uh, so think about sourcing your plants from safe places, from British-grown places that have had the plants in the country for at least a year or two, depending on what kind of plant it is. And if you want to try and xylella-proof your garden, potentially looking at what the high-risk hosts are and selecting around that or selecting other things that will against that disease. And, of course, you'll find a complete list on the RHS website, which is rhs.org.uk. Yes, certainly. And one of the most exciting things, I think, for one of our team members in biosecurity is being able to work on Phytophthora remorum which causes the sudden oak decline and that is a big problem in the United States and it is a controlled organism in the UK. So finding out if we get that, because it pops up every so often, but being able to work on that from a horticultural perspective is uh, really exciting for that team. Well, that's an amazing demonstration of the value of the work that you and your colleagues are doing here to the ordinary gardeners, especially our members, whose generous contributions fund your work. All of our research is, has got members at heart. 
all of our problems that we work on are the things that we think are the most important to members or they're novel things that members don't yet know about but we think will become an issue. We really do feed from the members' experience and we try and create new solutions to help them in the most relevant way possible. Jackie, that was really interesting and great to talk to you. Always a pleasure, Guy. Thanks. The story of science at Wisley goes back hundreds of years, with researchers from all over the world playing their part to advance the understanding of horticulture. Here's history lover Fiona Davison with a potted history. Not a lot of people know that the RHS were not the first people to garden at Wisley. The first gardener at Wisley was a man called George Ferguson Wilson. And he was a rich gentleman, very keen, amateur gardener. His family had made his money with the Price's Candle Factory. And George Ferguson Wilson was a trained chemist. And he not only made candles, but he also invented a lot of chemicals that got used in the garden. So pesticides, Gishurst compound was one of them. So he was very into experimental gardening and trialling out, growing new plants in new places. And he bought the land that we now know as Wisley, or a little part of what we now know as Wisley. It was a smaller garden. And he bought it because he got very excited because this piece of land in Surrey, he believed, had at least six different microclimates within it, different soil types, different climate. So he could do experiment to his heart's content, growing different types of plants in different types of ways. And he scrupulously kept a record and he would write it up in garden magazines, very much the same ways the RHS now writes about its gardening. So one of the plants that he really specialised in was lilies. He was called the Lily King and he really worked out how to grow these plants which were coming over from Japan and the Far East and people weren't that clued up on how to grow them but he worked it out through a very scientific process of trial and error and very carefully recording what worked and what didn't. Um, We're lucky enough to have his notebooks in the library and we've inherited those and they're a really great source to give you a sense of this garden. The other thing that he saw as a kind of personal quest was trying to grow a pure blue primrose common primroses we know are uh, yellow. He wanted to breed a pure blue one and eventually he kind of, well, it depends how charitable you're feeling. It's kind of purpley blue, but he eventually succeeded and we've got beautiful watercolour of it and it's called awkward blue. Unfortunately, it's no longer in cultivation. This particular plant was superseded by other better blue primroses in the future. And it became a famous garden and famous people like Gertrude Jekyll visited to come and see what Mr Wilson was up to until unfortunately George Ferguson Wilson died in 1903 and as luck would have it the RHS had a garden its main garden was in Chiswick in West London Chiswick was becoming swallowed up by the rest of London it was no longer a country area the RHS was really worried about pollution ruining all the plants and Just in time for its centenary in 1904, Thomas Hanbury, who was another very rich, very keen gardener, bought Mr Wilson's garden and gifted it to the RHS. And we renamed it Wisley. It had originally been called Awkward. We named it after the village nearby, Wisley. What's really interesting, as if you love Wisley and know Wisley well now as an RHS garden, is how much that 
you can see a continuity with Mr Wilson and the RHS. We carry on experimenting and trialling plants and we also carry on showcasing our successes and our failures so that other gardeners can learn from them. So if you want to get a sense of how Mr Wilson's garden originally looked, you need to head down to a part of the garden which we've called Awkward in his honour. It used to be known as the Wild Garden and you can see some of his original planting. It hasn't changed that much from black and white photographs that we've got. He's a naturalistic planter. He was one of the gardeners who was moving away from the regimented Victorian bedding with bright coloured flowers in regimented rows into hardy plants that could more look after themselves. So if you want to find out more about Mr Wilson and his amazing garden and the amazing people who visited it, you can find out more online. If you go to the RHS Digital Collections page on the RHS website, we've put together a little online exhibition all about Mr Wilson's Wisley uh, with lots of beautiful illustrations. It's a really lovely little thing. And the great thing is that now we've got the new library in Hilltop, the home of gardening science. We've now got a beautiful climate controlled store and we can keep treasures like Mr Wilson's notebooks and early maps of his garden safe for future generations and we'll be bringing them out for people to see in special tours and show and tells that will be running every week for visitors. Thanks Fiona. Alongside these brilliant new facilities we've also been able to create some stellar new gardens. First of all, we have the Wellbeing Garden, where I'm standing at the moment. And uh, what we're going to do here is for people to walk through and then we're going to assess how much better they feel after walking through it. And I feel pretty good just looking at it. And behind me, on the other side of the building, is the World Food Garden, where all sorts of fruit and vegetables and herbs are going to be grown for people to see. And also, I believe some are going to be gathered for use in the refreshment facilities that are just nearby as well. And then just around the corner is the Wildlife Garden, and that's got lots of ponds in particular. It looks amazing. Anne-Marie Powell designed this garden, and I had a talk to her about it. It's such an honour to be able to design the first garden at Wisley specifically for wildlife. I read an awful lot and did a super amount of research into kind of how people gardened with wildlife, how people without gardens might garden for wildlife. And just looking through that research, I eventually chanced upon the bee's wing. There's lots of imperfections within the wing structure itself. And it just made me realise just how fragile nature and wildlife is. This was an important opportunity to actually represent the human race as being part of the wider biodiversity of the world at whole. So the first starting point for me was we had to include water in that wildlife garden. Without water, there is no life. So there's a couple of really huge swathes of water. And the garden, you enter it by taking a bridge over from everyday life, a bridge over the water into the wildlife garden as a whole. So as you're walking over the bridge, and there are lots of plants just growing up and through, we've planted aquatic marginals for the first time at Wisley. So there's an aquatic range of water plants, essentially. So you will walk into a space where you can be lost in a myriad of different experiences. 
there is um, an AGM bed which is completely stacked with all of the plants that the RHS have actually proved are perfect for pollinators. And there's also a kind of smaller space. The garden is really quite large at nearly an acre and we didn't want the garden to just be perceived as being inspiration for those with large gardens. So there's a smaller, snugger, more kind of human scale section of the space and that's contained in a baby edible hedging and wildlife hedging there and it will grow up in time. The planting in the wildlife garden is really set to inspire so if you choose your favourite plants and take them home we're hoping that wildlife will bounce from garden to garden and all these individual spaces they will add up to a huge great wildlife corridor through the nation and the best way to introduce wildlife to your garden is really plant anything you know if you plant it the wildlife will come it's also an excuse to get to reduce reusing and recycling don't throw away any prunings that you might take from overgrown shrubs or clipping the hedge stack them up you know make habitat for all sorts of beetles and bugs and I think the third thing is just don't use chemicals. If you have got aphids or green fly, and haven't we all got them at the moment in our back gardens, don't be hasty to pick up the chemicals or to even hose off the majority because those green flies and black fly, they're food for the ladybirds. The ladybirds are in turn food for the birds. So many things will coexist and it starts from the bottom. And that will actually, of course input into our food systems eventually. The World Food Garden is linked to the Wildlife Garden for so many different reasons. And essentially, it's a chocolate box of food and edibles and growing your own, to be honest. The whole garden is set in the shape of an oval. And this was a bit of a challenge because most people know that historically, kitchen gardens of any time are usually kind of in the square or the rectangle. So an oval allowed us a chance as a practice to really experiment. The garden is split up into three segments. And first of all, there is a flower and herb garden. And we wanted to introduce that because really it always slightly amuses me, if I'm honest, that people kind of say that they're either a vegetable grower or a flower grower. And actually, lots of people are growing flowers and herbs that wouldn't consider them to be edibles for cropping. Things like malva and monadas that are edible for the table as well as being aesthetically pleasing and good for wildlife too. The next section that we step into is the good to grow areas. We selected the good to grow plants from an awful lot of plant families. So the very best green bean that you might be able to grow, the best and easiest and most straightforward spud to grow, the most wonderful spinach. We're experimenting with dig and no dig in these areas and it'll be really wonderful to see what the success rates are. And of course, the hilltop scientists will be able to measure that. And then finally, we go onto the world food maze and that is a place for you to get lost in a world of edible opportunity. There's all kinds of unusual things being grown in there. Things like Himalayan rhubarb and Japanese parsley, Chinese artichoke, lemongrass, tiger nut, sorrel, blood veins. It's just, they're the sort of plants that maybe the novice might not kind of leap to grow in the first instance. 
but they might be the most inspiring for those youngsters, for people who are allotmentarian, growing all sorts of these plants together already, to kind of be inspired to try something new. There's no point in growing all these edibles if you're not going to cook them and eat them, is there? So throughout designing the space, I, after about 20 years of not having an allotment, have been growing my own vegetables back home. So and experimenting with some of the stuff that we're growing at Wisley. I mean, just this last weekend, I experienced eating garlic scapes for the very first time in my life. And, and they're wonderful things, like the flowers, they are alliums after all. They curl around on themselves. So I had a whole kind of arm full of scape bracelets, which is really lovely. They taste a little bit like a slightly garlicky asparagus. What you do is you cut them up into measurable sizes. I blanched them for a moment and then pan fried them with a little touch of olive oil till they were caramelised and charcoaled. And then pop them on a pot over some homegrown broad beans, aquadolci, grown over the autumn and winter. A little squeeze of lemon juice, some chopped up mint from the garden and a little shaving of parmesan. Oh, I felt like a chef, I have to say. It was just wonderful. Having measurable data from the science team there is going to enable us to get backing from government. It's going to be enable us to say, this is really why you should be growing this sort of material. It will inspire children and it will really show the importance of horticulture within all of our lives and into the future. Anne-Marie Powell. Anne-Marie's World Food Garden is a great place to get inspiration for veg growers like me. It's full of exotic and lesser known foods that are worth trying, including sweet potatoes. Did you know that you could also eat the sweet potato leaves as greens? And salad burnet is a kind of herb that has a lovely cucumber flavour. Plus it's packed with some old favourites, including herbs. The topic of this week's growing food feature with Sylvia Travers. So I'm going to talk about herbs today. I think herbs for me are a gateway drug to growing your own. They're really easy. You can grow them in pots. You can grow them in water. And I'm going to talk about four of my favourites. Parsley, mint, summer savoury and basil. If I was going to choose one to start, if you hadn't grown anything ever before, grow mint. It's really, really simple. You can stick stems from shop-bought mint into a glass of water and they will root and you will have new plants that you can put in a pot and you'll have your own supply of mint and there's so many varieties out there other than the you know the usual spearmint or peppermint you've got apple mint which has a really nice little zing fruity zing to it you've got pineapple mint which is a, a variegated so it's got white tinges to the leaves you've got spearmint ginger mint moroccan mint chocolate mint which is like a plant form of an after eight and also Corsican mint, which is a grand cover mint, which is gorgeous to put on the edge of a path, which you can just walk in bare feet in the summer. It does like to roam, so it needs to be contained somehow, be it in a pot or in a bed that has a, a piece of slate or a paving slab inserted vertically into the soil next to it. Also, one thing that's really good to know with mint is that if the different varieties are grown together side by side, they tend to lose their distinctive flavour, so you need to separate them. So that's why either in pots or that paving slab would be really useful just to keep them separate. 
but they'll keep going until the first frost where they'll die back down. But as soon as spring comes, they'll come back up again. So you've got mint for life then. I'm going to talk about summer savoury next. It's one that's not often seen in shops. It's a really perishable herb, but it's really common in southern Europe. And it adds a kind of spicy thyme-like flavour to food. And it's really good with beans and beetroot in particular. It's a really delicate, soft-leaf plant, and it has produces beautiful little white flowers that actually taste amazing. They're tiny, but they taste just like summer savoury it does too. And the leaves can be dried to use over winter. But it's one that you probably need a little bit of heat to germinate, so it's kind of good on a windowsill. Treat it like, a, I guess, you would basil, which I'll talk about in a second. So it's not very winter-hardy at all, but again, it'll just crop and crop and crop, so keep using it. Basil. Who doesn't like basil? It's a true sign of summer. It's a bit fussy, but once you get the conditions right, it can be really prolific. So it likes lots of heat, lots of sunshine. So the best spot you can devote to it in your garden or your glass house, give it to basil. Sow it in mid-April and a bit of heat to germinate. And once you get the first true leaves, so after the seed leaves, which are kind of like a, a paddle shape, you'll get the first leaves, which you'll recognise as basil. Pot it into bigger pots and keep on going, you know, pot it up again, three or four to a 10 centimetre pot. And give it some water, but don't let it get damp and soggy. The leaves will start going black if it's not happy, and you'll notice it. The most familiar variety to us is the sweet Genovese, which is the classic Italian basil. There's also bush basil, which is a little bit hardier in the UK, which is a smaller squat plant with smaller leaves. I quite like it because it's not as stonkingly basil tasting like as uh, the sweet Genovese. There's also Thai basil, which is familiar in Thai cooking, which has got an aniseed twist to it. They're all worth trying. If you're going to grow food or if you're going to be a gardener or anything like that, you can't be afraid of failure. We all fail, but then you learn something from it. So you'll find out what works for you. Don't be afraid to try. Parsley, finally, is... I think I probably use parsley more than any other herb. Adds a nice little zing of flavour to anything. You can sow it in March and April for a summer crop. You can also sow some in July for a later overwintering crop until the following spring. It'll grow a bit slowly, but you'll get a few leaves here and there. It's slow to germinate, so don't give up hope. It needs light, so don't cover it with compost. Or if you do, just a very, very small sprinkling just to hold the seed in place. Or if you do have vermiculite or something like that, it's not essential, but use that. So bearing in mind, it needs light to germinate and it's slow, so therefore patience is required. You've got a mix of leaves. You've got your classic curly parsley, which we're familiar with, but also you've got the flat leaf Italian parsley, or I think it's called French as well. I like the flat leaf parsley because it's a milder flavour, but if you want to make your parsley sauce, the curly is the one to go for. Always good to hear from Sylvia. Well, that's it for this week, and what a fabulous day it's been standing here in the new gardens at the Hilltop Centre at Wisley. You can head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast for more on any of today's discussions. Thanks for listening and it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. 
With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.